instituted authority structures into the very fabric of the universe. Parents have authority over their children. Husbands are to lead their wives. Christ rules over his church. Pastors have a certain amount of authority uh, over their congregation and governing officials over their uh, delegated area. And God gives authority. He gives authority in a limited fashion, and he does that in all of these areas for the good of the people under that authority. And in some ways, these different authority structures are meant at their best to reflect God's rule. Because they are designed for our good, they are meant to bring life and prosperity to those under them. One of the most wonderful things about teaching uh, verse by verse through Scripture is you get to see how utterly realistic the Bible is. You get to see that it doesn't have these rose-colored glasses that it thinks life's always going uh, to go according to a Hallmark card or a Hallmark movie or, or even, let's be honest, a lot of the Christian songs we hear today. The Bible calls us to live in tension sometimes. And if you're not careful, as you look at these different passages of the Bible, you can think that they almost contradict one another. Or you can even think, you may uh, think today as you hear Levi preach that Levi's contradicting some things he's said elsewhere. But I encourage you that that isn't the case. This tension that we often see in Scripture as we go through different genres of Scripture, I think is most clearly seen in the New Testament, especially in the letters. The letters of Paul and the letters of the other apostles are written as occasional documents. Every one of them sprang up from issues, real-life issues, in real churches. And God used those issues in those churches and how messed up they were so that you and I would have a record of the teaching of the apostles. But sometimes the issue in one church is completely different than the issue in another church. And if you're not reading carefully, you can think Paul's contradicting himself. But he's not. Let me give you an example of this. In the book of Galatians, Paul writes to that church and he warns them about putting too much trust in works. He says, don't do that. You're abandoning the true gospel. And if we only had the book of Galatians, we might think that we should throw out all of the laws or rules of the Bible. But then if you look at the letters to the church at Corinth, 1 and 2 Corinthians, that church was living however they wanted. They were doing whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted. So Paul spends a lot of his time saying, you can't do that, you can't do that. Here's God's law on this, and here's God's law on that. One was focusing on, don't put your trust in your works for salvation. And the other one saying, if you are saved, you had better be living according to God's commands. And the Bible is designed in such a way that as we read it as a whole, we pick up on these tensions. These tensions that Scripture calls us to live in. Now, saying all of that does not mean that the Bible calls you to be a middle-of-the-road Christian. I don't want to go too far this way or too far that way. Being lukewarm is not a compliment. The Bible teaches these two different sides here to hem us in so we see what is really true. That is what the tension of Scripture does for us. And in today's passage, we read about the rebellion of Sheba. And he is from the tribe of Benjamin... And the tribe of Benjamin is the tribe that the former king, King Saul, came from. And this rebellion he is leading is really something that's been simmering under the surface since David ascended to the throne. Is that the tribe of Benjamin didn't like not being uh, the tribe in charge anymore. 
And what we're going to see here in Sheba's rebellion is the consequences of unjust, ungodly rebellion. And you're going to see the rebellious nature that we can find in all of our hearts. So the natural question comes as we read First and Second Samuel, as we've been doing now for several years, where we see this tension is what makes Sheba's rebellion and the rebellion of Absalom that we dealt with last week, what makes their disobedience in rebellion different than what we saw David do with Saul? Why is there a difference? Why is David disregarding the fact that Saul wants to kill him, running around the countryside while some of his countrymen tried to turn him into the king and then he just keeps running? Why is David's rebellion good and Sheba's is bad? That's the tension we should be having as we, we read this passage. And in some ways it has to do with the faithfulness or lack thereof of the rulers. David as a king, who Sheba is rebelling against, is largely, with a few really glaring exceptions, he is largely a faithful king. He largely is trying to follow God's commands for him as king. Saul started out there, but eventually Saul becomes an unfaithful king who tries to act as if he is God. He's got clear commands that he can't offer sacrifices, he can't do the role of the priest, and Saul goes and does it anyways. And God says, I'm going to take the kingdom from you, Saul, because of this. And so we see this tension here between when it's okay to disobey and when it's not, I think throughout the entire, the entire Bible. You have Paul who pens Romans 13 who says, listen to your governing authorities. And then he spends a large chunk of the book of Acts not listening to the governing authorities authorities. Why does God command obedience to his law in the Old Testament, but Christ in the Gospels looks at David breaking the law, eating the sacred bread, and said when David did that, that was good and righteous. How do we sort out that, that tension? Well, part of it is the reality of living in a broken and sinful world. Authority is a good thing. It's God-given, and it is to be obeyed, but authority in a fallen world is often abused and often used for evil. Authority, designed for man's good, but when it becomes destructive of God's good designs, life gets a whole lot more complicated. So what makes matters worse, and this is where we're going to spend the majority of our time here this morning, what makes matters worse is that you and I are bent towards rebellion. You and I are often way too quick to go towards rebellion. And sin in its most basic form is a rebellion against God. And when Adam fell into it, when Adam led the human race into sin, he became that chief rebel that we've all been following since that time. And we have this tendency to replace good authority that God has instituted with bad authority, and to follow our own sinful desires, just as Adam and Eve did. So we think too much of our own importance, our own authority, and we set ourselves up as little gods. So we think about, when is it okay to disobey? Well, think about the rebellion of Sheba. What's, what unites Sheba with somebody who had authority, like Stalin? What unites those two guys? One guy's rebelling against authority. One guy has authority, and he's doing untold atrocity. What unites them? And I'll give you this. The core sin that unites both of them 
is a rebellion against God and against his authority. Sheba and Stalin were guilty of the same sin. They were rebelling against the higher authority of God. Abuse of authority does not negate the goodness of God's design for authority. But abuse of authority is not something God is ever in favor of. He hates it. And he hates it far more than any one of us will ever do. So in this passage, we are going to see the consequences of rebellious hearts and what, in response to that, Christ has done for us. So let's look at those first two verses again of chapter 20. Our first thing we will see here, our first truth, is that rebellion is rooted in pride and often in greed. Now there happened there to be a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjaminite. And he blew the trumpet and he said, We have no portion in David and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his own tents, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. So Sheba here... He's described as being a worthless man. That is, he is someone who does not have good character. This is not somebody you want to put upon the throne. If this man gets power, he is going to, not only is he going to still be worthless, but he's going to magnify that worthlessness as he uses power for his own ends. And this is really at the heart of the difference between David's actions in 1 Samuel and Sheba's actions here. Is that even though David is a flawed man, he is still generally described as being faithful. He's still generally described as somebody who's trying to do God's work. And so we have David fleeing Saul's death order, living like Robin Hood, not listening to the king, because he knows that God has actually declared David to be king, that his time will come. That's what drives David's rebellion. Is God has anointed David king, and he just has to wait. Sheba's rebellion, conversely, is all about him. It's all about what Sheba wants. It's all about his desires. He basically says, hey guys, for my tribe, David isn't giving us enough stuff. We just overthrew Absalom, we, we took the kingdom back, and David should be giving us more of the things that we want, and he's not, and because he's not giving me what I want, I'm going to try to set up my own little kingdom. So he blows the trumpet to rally the people to his cause, and a lot of them, Israel here is referring to the ten tribes uh, that will eventually make up the divided kingdom of Israel and Judah, and most of them, almost all of them, follow him all because he appeals to basically their most base desires. If you come with me, I'll give you more of the things that you want. This is sin through and through. So we should really hear here the echoes of the Garden of Eden. When the serpent went to Eve, what did he say to her? How did he appeal to her? She who lived in a perfect garden had everything she could want, was even in the presence of God. The serpent said this to her. He said, For God knows that when you eat of it, that's the forbidden fruit, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The serpent, in essence, accuses God 
of being a tyrant. He says, God knows that this fruit is actually good for you, and if you eat it, you're actually going to become more like God. Now, if you're reading through Genesis, you know that God made Adam and Eve, unlike anything else in creation, to be like him. They are already like God. They stand in his presence, ruling over creation underneath God, because they are like him. And Satan says, that God who made you, who gave you this garden, he's keeping something good from you. He shouldn't be trusted. He's a tyrant. And if you take this fruit, you'll actually become just like him. And her response is this. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. And she took of its fruit and ate And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So where's her heart in all this? She sees the fruit, and by her own judgment, her own authority, she says, you know what? I do think that looks pretty good. I do think that I will become wise if I eat this. I do think I'll become a little bit more like God if I listen to this serpent. Basically, Eve and Adam set themselves up in the authority of God. God had said, do this. And they said, no, we're going to do this. This is the coup d'etat that marks the entire universe that is in the heart of every person born in the line of Adam, that we know better than him and that we can become our own rulers. So man fell into sin. He was removed from God's presence. He was cursed with God's wrath. And ever since then, man has tried to set up his own kingdoms, to find his own saviors, and to make his own rules. And instead of becoming more like God, man became less like God. And instead of becoming free, he became a slave to sin. This is the pattern of rebellion. Rooted in selfishness, rooted in wickedness, and ultimately it's an attempt to replace God with ourselves. And in no uncertain terms, that is, that is the core sin of this age. We have, and we disciple our children in this in the world, that they can shape and make reality into whatever they want it to be. Think about that. It doesn't matter how you're born. It doesn't matter your biology. We can overcome those things all just by thinking enough. We can recreate ourselves into whatever image we want ourselves to be in. But I've got news for you. Only God speaks things into existence. Only God creates things. And what he has created, you can never overthrow. No matter how many people tell you otherwise, you cannot go past what God has declared. So we set ourselves up as tiny little impotent gods who, if we're honest with ourselves are easily replaced, and we're not eternal. Our reign ends rather quickly. This is the ugliness of rebellion. And if we are not careful, we, we are no better. It's not even about being careful. We really are. We are no better than those outside the church. It is only by the grace of God that that kind of rebellion gets hemmed in. It has nothing to do with your intelligence, my intelligence, our righteousness, or anything. 
It is only by the grace of God that rebels like that can stop being rebels and be saved. Rebellion is our default if we are not in Christ. Second, we see that rebellion brings division. Rebellion brings division. So David, right, there's another rebellion. He, he let Absalom go do whatever he wanted for a while. He learned from his mistake there. The king must act. He can't let another rebellion happen. He has to squash it. But instead of going to Joab, who's been his general for quite some time through many, many trials, he goes to Amasa. And he gives Amasa a charge to go out there and to stop this, to gather some troops and to deal with the problem. But Amasa, he stalls, and then he asks Abishai for help. Now, Abishai is the brother, is the brother of Joab. And what follows here in this story is division within the ranks of Judah. Division within those who should be united. Starting in verse 8. When they were at uh, the great stone that is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Now Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, and over it was a belt with a sword in its sheath fastened on his thigh. And as he went forward, it fell out. And Joab said to Amasa, Is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand. So Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow. And he died. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. And one of Joab's young men took his stand by Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. you got to love that, verse 11. Literally, Amasa, his guts are spilled out on the ground, and this guy stands up and says, all right, we're all following Joab now. Everybody rally to him. And what we see here is, is all too common. You have two people here. Both of them are supposed to be serving David, Amasa and Joab. They should be on the same side, but they're not. They're at odds with one another. Now David, the root of these odds are is that David has had some real problems with Joab. He doesn't really trust him anymore for good reason, as displayed by the killing of Amasa. So he sets up Amasa as the new, the new general, and Joab isn't happy about it. So Joab comes up with his own mini-rebellion within the rebellion to kill Amasa so that he can become the general of David's armies yet again. Joab is doing whatever Joab wants to do. He's living in rebellion. As I said in my sermon back in December, Christianity is not now, nor will it ever be, a religion of anarchy. It is not now, or will it ever be, a religion where you get to decide what you can do based upon what you most want. God is God, and we are not. And if we ever try to unite ourselves around ourselves or to make ourselves the authority in a situation, division is sure to follow. Now, don't get me wrong. Not all division is bad. Christ said quite clearly in the Gospels that his ministry is like a sword that brings division because you either follow Jesus or you don't. Jesus says, I am God the Son incarnate. I came to die for your sins and I rose again in victory. You can either recognize me as that or not. And that divides the world. 
You either recognize Christ as Lord or you don't. But there's this inherent problem when we set up ourselves as the authority. If I were to ever say to you, you should all unite around Levi, the natural question should become, why should I listen to you? Who are you? What makes you so great? When all of us turn and look within and to set up our own kingdoms, there's no basis for us to unify around anything. There's no authority to be found within. There's no basis for unity there. And moreover, we all make terrible kings and queens. We don't have the power to save, and we're often only thinking about ourselves. But the good news in the work of Christ is that as we run our hell-bound race, doing whatever we want, Christ meets us, he confronts us, and he says, stop going that way and follow me. And through that, he gives life and he gives a basis for true unity. Paul writes these words to Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians in Ephesians chapter 2. Two people that by worldly standards, or two groups of people by worldly standards who should not like each other. He says this, For he himself, that is Jesus, is our peace. And he has made us both one. And he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, therefore are thereby killing the hostility. If you are in Christ today, we're all under one banner. We're under the banner of Christ. We are one new man, one new mankind in Christ. And that, brothers and sisters, is the only true foundation for unity. If you are in Christ, you are objectively united with him. And if there are two people in Christ, and both of them are objectively united in Christ, they are united to each other. And we're going to celebrate that with communion later on in the service. Communion represents our unity with Christ in our communion with one another as one body in one people. If Christ died on the cross for your sin, then we are all in us together. And this means your primary allegiance in this earth is to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Your primary allegiance is to people who are covered in the blood of Christ. When you think about the early church, the early church was so radical across all of those potential divisions. How were they united? Because they really believed that. And why do you think the church today struggles with that same kind of unity? It's because we are all submitting to a bunch of different authorities besides Christ. We find our identity not in him, but in ourselves, or some identity group, our cultural whims, our desires, our viewing each other as primarily as a part of an oppressed group or an oppressor group, and we all just look within, and then we wonder why we can't be united with anyone else. Because you're so blinded by yourself and everything that really doesn't matter. But if we look to Christ and follow him, 
that unity comes. Third, rebellion brings death. The wages of sin is death. Sheba leads his men to a city. Joab is now following him with his army. And we read this in verses 14 and 15. And Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel of Beth-Makkah. And all the Bichrites assembled and followed him in. And all the men who were with Joab came and besieged him in Abel of Beth-Makkah. And they cast up a mound against the city, and it stood against the rampart. And they were battering the wall to throw it down. So Sheba leads his rebels in, into a city. By this point, it looks like he's been abandoned by most of Israel, except for his own tribe. And Joab and company arrive to a woman waiting outside the walls. You can see that in your, in your text there. And she's ready to turn over Sheba to save the city. She's like, I'm going to turn him over to you so that we can save this city. And that's exactly what happens. Sheba and all of his men, they die. Rebellion leads to death. As we've established, God rules over everything, and yet we often feel the need to set ourselves up as that authority. Throughout world history, throughout world history, is a long, bloody tale of many rebellions. Some of them succeeded in gaining power, and others of them utterly failed. And we need to hear this. The mere fact that Sheba failed is not proof that he was wrong. Success or failure in a rebellion doesn't really mean much as to the righteousness of the cause. Let me give you a few examples. The Bolshevik Revolution overthrew the powers of Russia back in the early 1900s, and when they had a very bloody overthrow of the, uh, of the royal family there, and that ushered in communism in Russia, which then led to hundreds of millions of deaths. They won, but they weren't right. Conversely, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor in Nazi Germany, and he was a part of a group of assassins who were trying to kill Adolf Hitler, and he failed. Eventually, he got arrested and put to death. Just because he failed doesn't mean he was necessarily wrong. So what, again, is the difference between David and Sheba, David and Absalom? At its heart, the difference is a submission to God. David followed God's will. David was doing what he was doing because he was submitting to a higher authority, that is God. Sheba was working actively against God's will. And that's really all that matters in all of life. David appealed to an authority outside of himself, that is God, and Sheba appealed to his own selfishness and pride. One was acting in faith and one was not. And all sinful rebellion at its heart is a rejection and a rebellion against God himself. That's the core sin of the human race. And here's the thing. God is the fountain of life. He is the source of it all. And if you cut yourself off from God, you get death. That's the story of Scripture. If you cut yourself off from the fountain of life, you will die. The wages of sin is death. In refusing to submit to God's authority, we then exchange him for new authorities like sin, death, and Satan. Jesus makes this clear to us in John chapter 8. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. 
If you think that not, by not listening to God, you're going to be free somehow? No, you've exchanged one master for a new master. And this master, he's not as nice. He's not going to take care of you. He, say, he says he will, but he won't. Some of you, sitting here this morning, are slaves to sin. You are caught up in an authority who will not let you go easily. And you are serving a master who is slowly but surely killing you. You are a slave to your passions and you see no way out. So let me ask you this question. Are you sick of it yet? Are you sick of it yet? Are you sick of being ruled by your sin? Everything that promised life to you isn't really working out. And you seem powerless to do anything about it. That's because you are. But Jesus continues in John 8. He says, But if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. The Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. That's your king. That he would come even to the rebels who have rejected him and said, I will take you back. And you can actually have freedom. But man, you have to look that old king in the eye and say, I'm done with you. There's no escape from sin, death, and Satan except by the blood of Christ. And he will free you even this morning if you will humble yourselves to admit that you've been a rebel. And that you've exchanged God for something far less. Our final truth here is that Christ brings both justice and mercy. And this is pretty much all of chapter 21. The Gibeonites ask for justice. After, after Sheba's rebellion is crushed, the Gibeonites ask for justice on Saul's sons. Because Saul and his lineage have killed many of the Gibeonites. You don't know who the Gibeonites are back in the book of Joshua. They were already in the land of Canaan as Israel was coming in, and they tricked the Israelites into entering into a covenant with them so that the Israelites wouldn't kill them. So the Gibeonites are not a natural part of Israel. And here they are petitioning King David to save them, to stop Saul's descendants from their continued persecution of them. And in response to this, David has the descendants of Saul killed, except for Mephibosheth. And so justice is brought on the tribe of Benjamin and on the clan of Saul, and peace will reign for at least a little bit longer in Israel. So this is the constant theme in Scripture. Coming from the character of God is this idea of both justice and mercy. Justice is you receiving what you have earned. What is your due? And as sinners, your due is punishment. And mercy is you not receiving that. Mercy is God saying, even though you deserve that, I'm not going to give it to you. And the Bible paints this wonderful picture that our God is both at the same time. That he's a God who will build his kingdom upon justice and righteousness and it'll last forever. But he's also a God who loves and longs to show mercy. And David as the true king of God's people, is a picture or a foreshadow of Christ. This is why throughout the Gospels, they make a big deal of the fact that Jesus is the son of David. 
It's because he's the greater David that was to come. He's from the line of the king. He's the true king of Israel. And so in a lot of ways, when we see David doing the things he should be doing, you're seeing a picture that says this is what the true king will look like later on. And so David brings judgment. He brings justice. And then he's also going to bring mercy. And we see a picture of God bringing this justice or Christ bringing this justice in Revelation 19, this theme of rebellion. In Revelation 19, all of the kings of the world gather with all of their armies to wage war upon the true King Jesus. And Jesus rides out of the clouds with his armies behind him. Most kings ride behind their armies. He's riding in front of his armies. He rides out in front of them, and out of his mouth comes a sword. And by that sword, Jesus doesn't actually have a sword in his mouth. It's a picture By his word, he defeats all the enemies, all the kings of this world. He executes justice on the rebellious nations. This is what Christianity has always taught. God will judge your sin. He will. Your sin is rebellion of the highest order, and he cannot and will not turn a blind eye to it. If you persist in it, There will only be fear on that day at the sight of Christ. And he will judge you just as David judges Saul's sons here. Rebels receive justice. Yet, Christ also brings mercy. Christ also brings mercy. The heart of the gospel is that Christ comes down and goes to the cross in the place of rebels. He doesn't excuse your actions. He doesn't just say, well, you know, no big deal. He's still a God of justice. Justice and mercy meet on the cross. He says, your sin has to be punished. For God to be just, it has to be punished. So Christ says, I will take it for you. The punishment's going to come. Either he's going to take it for you or you're going to take it. So you have this picture of Jesus in the garden right before he is about to be crucified. And he prays to the Father, and he asks that the Father would take this cup. He says, if there's anything you can do, Father, take this cup from me. What's the cup? Well, the cup is a picture that goes all throughout the Old Testament. This cup is pictured as a foaming cup of wine that is God's foaming wrath that is going to be poured out upon the nations. And Jesus is sitting there about to take and drink that cup. He says, Father, if there's any other way, let's go that way. But not my will, but yours be done. And so Christ dies as a rebel upon the cross, taking the punishment for his people. He drinks the cup so that you don't have to. And so now, if you are in Christ, there is no sin anymore. You have been declared by God because of the merits of Christ as wholly innocent. You're not a rebel anymore. Now you're a child of God and a part of his kingdom. And this is the choice that is laid before all of us. Do I want God's justice or do I want his mercy? Do I want his wrath or do I want my wrath to go upon Christ? And it basically boils down to whether or not we will harden our hearts 
and continue to reject the authority of God and continue to live as rebels? Or will we confess our sins and throw ourselves upon the true king, who is Christ? There and there alone is healing, is life, and power to grow in his kingdom even now. So we'll end where we, where we began this morning. We all submit to something. You may be submitting to yourself. You may be being ruled over by your greed or your lust or your selfishness or your pride or your illusion that you can control your life and get everything to work the way you want it to. Ain't gonna happen. You may be um, serving wicked ideologies, bowing the knee to many, many things. But there are only two options. You can either keep going that way or you can hear the call of your king who says, I'll take that punishment for you. The good news is, is God is merciful to those who confess their sins. God is longing to forgive you. And he can save you through Christ. And this morning, uh, we are going to partake in the Lord's Supper. I invite you to take that out now at this, at this time. And this meal pictures that reality. That Christ came and the night before he was, he was to die, he said, this thing is a picture of why I came. That my body was going to be crushed for you. My blood was going to be poured out to make a new covenant. So I invite you this morning, if you are in Christ, this meal is for you. The church has been practicing this meal for 2,000 years. It's an ancient practice. And we look back to see what Christ has done for us. And by doing this regularly, we also look forward to declare that Jesus, he's coming back. And we will eat this meal until then. I invite you to uh, take out the bread. Jesus took the bread and he passed it to his disciples. And he said, this bread is my body which is broken for you. Take and eat. Likewise, he passed the cup to his disciples and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Take and drink all of it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we are humbled this morning that you came to this earth to die in the place of rebels like us. Lord, we ask that you would slowly but surely change our hearts to stop looking for any other king besides you. That you would convict us of our sin and that you would comfort us with your grace. That as we looked within, we would be constantly reminded of how terrible of rulers we are. And that we would be constantly driven to look upon that cross and to see our king there. So Lord, we ask that you would strengthen us by this reminder and that you would hasten that day that you would return to us. So in the name of Christ we pray, amen.
Let's close our time this morning together by singing one more time. Would you please stand as we sing?